you have your Bibles with you this morning, would you open them please to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at just one verse for our scripture reading, verse 20. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. 2 Corinthians is in the New Testament, right beside 1 Corinthians, page 1249 in my Bible. And as you're finding it, we're beginning a brand new sermon series this morning. It's called Promises. And in the weeks to come, we're going to be looking at specific promises found in the Bible that you and I can believe and we can apply to our lives as we go through this journey called life and faith. But this morning, what we're going to do is lay a foundation, if you will, for what we're going to do in the weeks to come. You're only as good as your foundation. You can put a million-dollar building on a ten-cent foundation, and it's not going to stand. It, it will fall. And so what I want to do is lay a foundation about promises in general that will allow us later to understand the promises in specific. The words of the Apostle Paul, the greatest Christian man who ever lived, to the church at Corinth, to the church at Miles Road. And notice what he says, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20. For all, all the promises of God are in Christ Jesus, are yes. And in Him, amen. And the glory of God is by us. Now, let me give you my translation of that, the Jim Palmer amplified version of that. All the promises of God, everything that God has said He's going to do and He will do, are in Jesus Christ, His Son. And because those promises are in Jesus Christ, you can say, Yes, they will happen. Amen. And when you do that, it's to the glory of God Himself. I heard the story about a man by the name of Russell Herman. He died many years ago, having lived most of his life in the state of Illinois. At the reading of his will, with all of his family present, the attorney announced that their father had decided to give away some of his estate. He had decided, Mr. Russell Herman, who's now deceased, but he had decided to give away $2.4 billion dollars. Not million, not thousand, $2.4 billion to a small town called Cave-In Rock. Furthermore, out of his estate, he designated another $2.4 billion to go to the city of East St. Louis. On top of that, he designated one and a half billion dollars 
to go to the state of Illinois for recreational centers to be built. His family heard the attorney make this announcement. And their jaws dropped. Their hair began to turn up on the back of their neck. They began to clench their fist and grind their teeth a little bit. Goodness gracious, we knew Dad was generous, but what? All of this? Giving away all of this money to a, a, a town and a city and a state? But there was a little problem. There was a little minor matter that had to be attended to before these disbursements could be made. And it was this. Where was this $6.3 billion going to come from? You see, Russell Herman, his estate only had $170 in it. And the only possession he had to his name was an 11-year-old Oldsmobile. Broke down in his driveway. (laughs) You know, we laugh at Russell Herman. But isn't he just like us? He made promises, but he didn't keep them. He may have been sincere. (laughs) He may have had good intentions. But he made a promise he couldn't keep. He wrote a check he couldn't cash. Now, we tend to do that. Make promises, break promises. Make promises, can't keep promises. But I want you to know that the God of the Bible, He's a promise-making, promise-keeping God. He makes promises, but because he's omniscient, he has all wisdom. Because he's omnipotent, he has all power. When he makes a promise, he can keep a promise. The promise-making God of the Bible is the promise-keeping God of the Bible. Now, you might be asking yourself a question. Pastor, exactly what is a promise? If you're going to be talking about it today in general, if you're going to be talking about it in the weeks to come in specificness, exactly what is a promise? What is a promise from God? Well, I like this definition. This is not my own, but I like it, so I'm going to give it to you. A promise for God, or a promise from God, is His assurance... That what he said is what he will do as his people wait on him to do it. A promise from God is his assurance, his guarantee, his absolute fact that what he says is what he will do even while his people wait on him to do it. In other words, when God says something, He's going to do it. He may not do it at this minute. He may not do it today or tomorrow or next week or next month or even next year. But you can always count on God doing it at some point. 
What he says is what he does. And because God always keeps his word, we then can walk by faith. We don't have to have doubts. We don't have to have worry. When God has said something, we can believe it, and we can walk on through this world with confidence. Remember, God never overpromises, and He never underdelivers. Now, what we're going to do is look at some what I call promise principles. Because I really want us to get a working knowledge of these as we go into the specific promises next week. Now, at the 8.30 service, they started out all excited. And the excitement started headed downhill. Because some of these things I'm going to say, you may not like these things. You may say, well, I I, I didn't come here to hear that. (laughs) Well, you're here. And the doors are locked. So when I got you, I'm going to get it to you. No, but some of these principles, I think, are just going to kind of make us think a little bit how we've always looked at the promises of God. All right, so you ready? These are the ten promise principles that I want you to kind of grasp. Principle number one. Promises in the Word of God must always be kept in context. Promises found in the Bible, like anything else, must always be kept in context. Let me give you an example. Hebrews 13.5 says, I will never leave you or forsake you. The words of the Lord, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. Every one of us have heard of that. Most of us have quoted that, and most of us believe it's to be just a general promise. God will always be with us. He'll never forsake us, period. Do you know that that promise is only half of the verse? You see, you've got to keep things in context if you're going to claim the promise, if you're going to understand the promise if you're going to apply the promise. So if you got your Bibles, you might just want to turn over to Hebrews 13.5 and let's look at the whole verse, not just the part that we pull out. The writer of Hebrews says, as you're turning, let your lifestyle be without greed and be content with such things as you have. He's speaking of money and material things. For he hath said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Let your lifestyle be without greed and be content with such things financially and materially that you have. For the Lord has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. In context, what this promise is saying is, Those of us who will be content with the money that we have, with the material things that we have, and will not in greed go chase after more money and more material things that we don't need but we just want, 
Those of us who will be content and satisfied with what God has provided for us in the way of dollars and in the way of things, those of us who will have that contentment, God will give us His presence. In other words, if you won't be greedy and make gold your God, then you will have the presence of the true and living God in your life. Wow. God's presence will be all that you will need if you will trust Him with your money and material things. So this promise comes with a condition. So you've got to keep promises in context. You just can't pull them out of the hat like a magician would a rabbit. You've got to know the context, particularly if you're just pulling a promise out of a part of a verse. Okay? So promise number one, they must be kept in context. Promise principle number two. We must be careful not to claim someone else's promise. Let me give you another example. Jeremiah 29.11 is one of the most quoted verses in the Bible. And most of us take that verse and we claim it as a personal promise. But understand that this is not a promise to you and me. It is a promise. And there's some principles from that promise that we can learn. But this is not a promise that has my name on it, nor your name on it. Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end or to give you a future. Now, you've heard that before. But may I say, while it's a promise, it's not a promise made to Sam. It's not a promise made to Keith. It's not a promise made to you. It's not a promise made to me. In context, this is a promise made to the Jewish people who were in exile. The Babylonians had, ca had carried them off. They were now under the captivity of Babylonian masters. They were far from their homeland. And the prophet Jeremiah speaks to them and says, Listen. Right now you are under the thumb of the Babylonians, but one day that will change. Now you're in exile, but one day God is going to bring you back home. It's not the end. You still have a future, what he's saying to his people. This is a promise made to the Jewish people in exile. And do you know that God, 70 years after he made this statement, he delivered he brought his people home, and he set his people free. This is not a promise for us. It was a promise for them. But all promises have principles that you can learn from and draw from. So what can we learn from this promise very quickly? I can't claim the promise, neither can you. It doesn't have our name on it. But there's some principles we can learn we can first of all learn that sometimes promises take time. Jeremiah spoke this promise. It would be 70 years later before God would do it. 70 years. 
We also can learn from this promise that God does not want to harm us. God is not a bully in heaven walking around with the club, waiting for us to do something wrong so he can beat the daylights out of us with the club. God doesn't want to harm us. He loves us. And He wants to help us. Even when we mess up, God's grace and mercy are there to help us. We can also learn from this verse that God has plans for us. He had plans for the Hebrew people. He had plans for His people that one day would become part of the nation of Israel. He has plans for them and He has plans for us. When God created you and me, He created us with plan and purpose. When God saved us, He saved us with plan and purpose. And it's not just to sit in a pew and look up here at me preaching. God saved you to do something. And you have a future. That's what He told the people. He said, you have a future. Maybe you messed up and blew it, but you still have a future. And some of you feel like maybe you've messed up in your life. You don't have any hope. I tell you, you do. you got a future. Principle number three. Principle number one, promises must be kept in context. Principle number two, we cannot claim someone else's promise as our own. Again, context important. Principle number three, all of God's promises must be accepted. Now this is where they got pale at 830 Some of them got a little green pea sick looking color. Because what we like to do is we like to treat the promises of God, in fact the Bible itself, like we go to the cafeteria. Yes ma'am, I think I'll have that little salad right there. Sir, would you like this? No ma'am, I don't want any of that. I'll just take that salad there. And, and I, I think I'll have that entree there. No, ma'am, I don't want any of those other things. And dessert, yes, ma'am, I'll take that dessert and that dessert and that dessert. <laughs> but no, ma'am, I don't, I, don't, I don't care for that. No, ma'am. You see, most of us treat the Bible like we would treat going to S&S cafeteria. It's a buffet. You know, I'll take this. No, ma'am. I'll take that. No, ma'am. You can't do that when it comes to the promises of God. You take them all or you take them none. You see, most of us like to choose going through the cafeteria line of the Bible. God's promise He made to us in Philippians 4.19. Our God shall meet all of our needs. We like that one. Smile. You like that one. Our God will meet all of our needs according to His riches in glory through Christ Jesus. I like that one. I'm glad you do. Because right next to that peach cobbler with ice cream I just gave you is some spinach. And John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus also had a promise to us. He said, in this world, you will, you will, you will have what? Tribulation. You see, we like the peach cobbler with ice cream, but we don't like the spinach. But if you're going to go through the buffet line of God's Word, you've got to take it all. You just can't sort out what you want and discard the rest. So all of God's promises must be considered as we go through the journey of faith. And by the way, the rest of that verse 
in this world you will have tr trouble, tribulation. But be of what? Good cheer. Because he's done what? Overcome the world. That goes back to we have won. Principle number four. God's promises are about bringing glory to himself. Why does God make promises? Just to make them? Is he a boaster like some of our politicians? Is, is he just boast and brag? No. God makes promises. And God fulfills his promises that we might bring our praises and our thanks and our glory to him. Psalm 119, verse 38 says, Fulfill your promise to your servant, so that your servant may worship you. Why does God give promises and, may, and fulfill them? Because he wants us to bring glory to him. He wants us to worship him. God's promises aren't about us. You know, we have a tendency in our day and age to make everything about us. It's not about us. It's never been about us. It's about Him. And as He makes promises and keeps promises to us, it ought to cause us to swell up on the inside and just want to say, Thank you, Lord. Praise you, Lord. Honor and glory to you, O Lord. The purpose of it is that we'll praise Him. When God does something for you, do you tell Him thank you? Keep God's promises in context. Don't apply a promise God makes to someone else to you. All promises must be accepted. Can't pick and choose which ones you like and don't like. And all promises are given for God's glory. Principle number five. Some promises found in the Bible have a if-then proposition. In other words, if we do this, then God will do that. If we don't do this, then God will not do that. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, a verse that all of us have heard many times, preachers preach on it quite frequently, is an if-then promise. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, if they will do this, what does God say he will do? Then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. Okay? Now that's applied to the nation of Israel. I think it could be applied to all nations. But the but this is a promise that's based on a condition. We do what we're supposed to do, that God can do what he said he would do. If we do not fulfill our part of the bargain, God is under no obligation to fulfill his. And many promises in the Bible have an if and then proposition to them. Once again, we have a tendency to drop the if and just focus on the then. Principle number six, all promises must be applied by faith. With faith, it's impossible to please God. 
But to them who will come to God by faith, they shall be rewarded. Promises that God makes to us has to be appropriated by us through faith. Hebrews 4, verse 2. For unto us was the message preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them. Now, why didn't the word preach profit them? Why, would, why weren't the things that were said to them mean anything to them? Because they were not mixed with faith in them that heard it. What gives us confidence in what has been said? What gives us confidence that what has been said will be done? It's the person who said it and the person who's going to do it. If I told you I was going to give you a million dollars after the service, see me at the door. You might say, Pastor, I certainly appreciate that, but you don't have a million dollars to give. And you know something? You're right. I don't. So you would have no confidence in what I said, less confidence in what I'm going to do, because you know I can't do it. Right? But when God says something, He can do it. Is there anything too hard for God? You know, we, we make our prayers big prayers and little prayers. We only bring to God the big prayers and we, we'll handle the little ones. Well, let me ask you a question. What's big to God? <laughs> I mean, what's big to God? There's nothing big to God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. If you believe that, then there's nothing else to worry about. All God's promises must be applied by faith. Not faith in the promise. Not faith in how it's going to be unfold or how it's going to be performed. Our faith is in the person who said it. We believe in who God is. Therefore, we believe in what God says. Therefore, we believe in what God can do. And we wait on God to do it. What a novel concept. <laughs> because God said it, I believe it. What God has said, I know God can do. And what God can do, He will do in His own time and in His own way. I'm just going to wait. But you've got to apply that by faith. Principle number seven. We must claim God's promises actively in prayer. You want to transform your prayer life? Take the promises of the Bible, the Word of God, and there's about 9,000 of them last time somebody counted, give or take a few. Take the promises found in the Bible. Claim them for your own as you can claim them for your own. Claim them in the context in which they're given. And return them to God. The best prayers are when we take back to God what He's already said. Does that make sense to you? I'm going to give you a million dollars. And I've got it. You know it. Okay? okay? 
One week goes by, two weeks go by, three weeks go by, and you ain't got your million dollars. And so you're thinking to yourself, well, maybe the pastor forgot. <laughs> I think I'm going to nudge his memory a little bit. Pastor, good to see you this morning. Thank you. Do you not remember what you said to me several weeks ago? You said you had a million dollars for me. I'm not trying to rush you. just want to remind you. Do you know when we quote God's word back to him, what we're saying is, Lord, we're just reminding you of what you said and asking you to do it. The best promises are prayed back to God because God will always do what he says and he always says what he does. Get you some promises and pray them. And watch what God will do when you return his word to him. Because he said his word would never return to him with what? Void. He's going to act on it. Principle number eight. Don't lose hope when God's promises are slow to come. Hebrews 10, verse 23, the writer of Hebrews said, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he that has made promises will be faithful. I guess the Hebrew people, when they were under Babylonian captivity, were saying, Lord, where are you at? Your prophet Jeremiah said, one day we're going home. We're not home yet, Lord. He said, one day we'd be free, but we're not free yet, Lord. Lord, when are, when are you coming? He came, didn't he? Seventy years later. You see, our God is not a God of time. Calendars and clocks don't mean anything to him. He's always been, he'll always be. He's the eternal I am. He has no past, he has no future, he's always in the present. And when we get to heaven, we won't need wristwatches either. We won't need calendars either. But down here, we, we have to live by time. But God does not conduct himself according to time. God is about timing. We look at only one piece of the puzzle, and that, puzzle, uh, that piece of the puzzle is guess who? Me and you. All I care is about Jim Palmer in the puzzle. Don't you smile, all you care about you. And once we put our piece in the puzzle, we say, God, you can come do what you're supposed to do. I'm ready. God doesn't move until the entire puzzle's filled in. God is not just looking at me. He's not just looking at you. He's looking at the whole kit and caboodle. And when he's ready to tie the strings together, he'll do it. But not before. He's not a God of time. He's a God of timing. And in his own time, he will keep every promise he's made in his time. He's never late, but he's seldom early. He's always on time. Principle number nine. For promises to be claimed, they must be known. If you're going to claim a promise, you got the first what? Know it. That's what 2 Corinthians 1.20 says. God spoke the promises. He spoke 
by, to us the promises. They were spoke by us. How can you claim a promise if you don't know it? Can you? No. That's why it's so important, ladies and gentlemen, to know what? To know your... This is the promise book. We have more technology today to educate people than any time in the history of the world. And yet we've got more dumb people than any time in the history of the world. Biblical illiteracy among God's people is at an all-time high. I mean, it is atrocious what the common Christian knows more importantly, what they don't know. We were talking last week about Waters World, talking to Ivy League students about simple historical things that deal with our country, and they didn't even know them. Well, you know, when you talk to simple Christians and just ask them very basic Bible questions, most of them haven't got a clue. Do you know if I said, I want you to open your Bibles to the book of Bereans this morning? Ah, the index. Thank God for the index. By the way, for those of you who may not figure out what I'm trying to say, there is no book of Bereans. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 27, verse 6. Who's the apostles? Oh, that's easy, Pastor. They're the epistles' husbands. (laughs) Now, I'm being a little facetious, but listen, you can't pray the promises of God back to Him if you don't know Him. You can't claim the promises of God in this journey of walk or a journey of faith and life if you don't know them? How can you claim what you don't know? Read your Bible and study your Bible. You'll be glad you did one day. And then the last principle before we have to close this thing up is all God's promises are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. Everything the Father does, He does through the Son. The Son is His pride and joy. And when the Father's going to do anything, He always goes through the Son. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 says that all the promises that God has made go through Christ. And because they go through Christ, we can say yes and we can say amen because if it's going through Jesus, you can count on it to happen. He's faithful and true to His Word. In fact, that's what it says of him in the Revelation. He is faithful and he is true. God the Father makes the promises. God the Son delivers them. And all we got to do is say, Amen! It's done. It's done. Well, in closing, there was a man by the name of Steve Marsh. Steve Marsh took care of his aging aunt. She had no family. She lived by herself. And she was up in years and her health wasn't good. So Steve, the nephew, would go over and he would help her 
and the daily things of life. Well, when his aged aunt passed away, she left everything that she had to nephew Steve. Everything. After everything went through probate, after all the bills of the estate were paid, the attorney called Steve in and said, we're ready to settle your aunt's estate. She has a check for you. And he handed the young man the check. And the check was for $270. $270. Said, after all the bills have been paid, this is all that's left. He also said, here's the keys to her house. The house will be sold, as she instructed, but you get all the furniture. So you can go by and take all the furniture out of the house. Well, the furniture was old, it was dated, it was scratchy, it was dusty, it was dirty. It was just, it, it wasn't anything he was interested in, but okay. And then the attorney said the last thing that your aunt would like you to have beside the check for $270 and the furniture is her Bible. She read this Bible every day. It meant very much to her and she'd like you to have it. So the young man took the Bible, took the keys to the house so he could get the furniture, took the check for $270, and, and several days he had spent the money. Several weeks later he had given the furniture away. And the Bible, well, he really wasn't interested so much in the Bible, but since she gave it to him, he thought he'd just put it on his bookshelf. So he pushed some books to the side, stuck it up on the shelf, and it stayed on the shelf for 30 years. For 30 years, that Bible sat on that shelf. He never opened it. He never bothered it. It just sat there, collected dust. Well, there came a time when, when Steve got sick. He got so sick that he could no longer work. Because he could no longer work, he couldn't pay his bills. And so Steve, that had such a promising life, all of a sudden now is living like a pauper. He doesn't have anything. It got so bad that he couldn't pay his bills that he lost his house. And they, they were going to come and evict him. And the sheriff came and said, Listen, I'm giving you 24 hours before we toss you out of this house to get what you want. In 24 hours, I'm going to come. I'm going to padlock everything. You're going to be out. So here's Steve. He's sick. He's disabled. He hasn't got any money. He's losing his house. And so he has 24 hours to gather what he can. So he starts loading up in a suitcase, a few of this, a few of that, all, all he can get. And something reminded him about that Bible. And so he walked over to the bookshelf and he took it off for the first time in 30 years. And he stood there and he began to open it. And as he peeled through the pages of his aunt's Bible, he discovered something. Every three to four pages... There was a $100 bill there. 100, 200, 300, 400, 500. By the time he went through the entire Bible, there was over $20,000 in $100 bills in that Bible. Here was a man who lived like a pauper. For all of these years when the wealth of his aunt was in the Bible. And many of us 
are living like spiritual paupers down here. When God says to us in my Bible that you have in your hands, there is a wealth of promises that can make you a millionaire. Not materially, but spiritually. Why do you want to live like a bum when you can live like a king spiritually? But you've got to find the promises and you've got to claim them and appropriate them or they mean nothing to you. And so that's what we're going to be doing over the days and weeks to come. Looking at the promises. Putting them in context. Making sure that they're ours. And when they're ours, how to use them that we can be rich in Christ spiritually as we await His coming. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed.